Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all this morning, and uh, for your visitors, it's great to see new faces in our, in our building, and uh, we pray that you feel welcome this morning, and uh, just love that you're here. Uh, thank you for uh, choosing to worship with us this morning at Grace Redeemer, and uh, just ask, that, uh, ask the Lord that you would be blessed. Uh, I would just like to take a minute to, to thank the entire music team and the sound and audiovisual team. They've been working so hard to get this building to sound right, our sound uh, both in the building and on Facebook, and really have been trying hard with that. And so I just want to thank you all for, for your work. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, I welcome you all. And for those of you watching on Facebook, I welcome you as well. And I uh, pray that we have a great time this morning worshiping uh, the Lord and hearing his word. Uh, so uh, this morning, we are going to be continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in a message that I'm calling uh, One Flesh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Uh, so before we go into it, let's just ask the Lord to give us help. Uh, Lord, this is a difficult topic that we come to this morning, and we ask that you would uh, always have us know that grace is available to us, Lord, because we trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. We have grace uh, Lord, no matter what our sin. And so we're thankful for that, Lord. We're thankful for the sacrifice. And Lord, uh, help this word this morning. Uh, Lord, toss, uh, burn up what is chaff, and let the wheat remain. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, by way of introduction, before I even dive into the message, I just want to say a couple of things. And uh, the first one is that last week was pretty heavy on sin and on judgment. Uh, and sometimes we come across verses like that in the Bible, and we have to preach those verses when they come. I'm hoping that this week uh, will be much more focused on grace, uh, the grace that God gives us uh, because we trust in his Son as Savior. And the second thing that I want to uh, talk about before we begin is that the, the trouble with preaching the whole counsel of God is that you have to preach the whole counsel of God. And so uh, I might like to skip these verses today because uh, when you come to divorce, uh, it's a messy topic. It's a very difficult topic. Uh, people are very complex relationships are messy. Nobody knows what goes on in another marriage behind the closed doors of that marriage. And so uh, it's easy for us sometimes to, to think that we have the right to stand in judgment over other people, and we certainly don't. Uh, and so uh, even though uh, I might like to skip this message, I can't skip it because this is where we are uh, in the Bible. And so I just want us to know this morning the love and grace of God, and that's what I pray comes through this morning as we talk about divorce. Uh, whether you happen to be in a bad marriage now, or whether your marriage has ended in divorce, or whether you've been affected by divorce in some way, uh, I just pray uh, that you understand that God loves us, and there's always hope in Christ, and, and the blood of Jesus covers all of our sin. Uh, and so uh, with that said, uh, let's now uh, talk about Jesus's teaching on divorce. Many of you may remember from seventh grade, eighth grade high school class that the atom is the smallest uh, part of a particular element. Uh, so for example, if you were going to have a pile of hydrogen, the smallest bit of hydrogen you could have and have it still be hydrogen would be the atom. Uh, that's what an atom is. Uh, so uh, atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, and that's uh, what a hydrogen atom looks like. But if you separate them, you no longer have a hydrogen atom. You have something else, but you don't have a hydrogen atom anymore. Uh, the science of splitting the atom 
began in the early 1900s when a scientist realized that if you split the atom, uh, you could create a certain amount of energy. Uh, and if that energy could be harnessed, well, then you would have a, a source uh, of, of a new uh, place where you could get energy from. And so scientists tried to figure out how they could split the atom and, and what they would do with it. And so uh, in time, scientists realized that if that energy could be harnessed, well, what a powerful thing that would be. And so uh, it took years, but they figured out that uh, if you take a particle accelerator and you shoot a neutron at the nucleus of another atom at just the right speed, uh, you'll get that atom to split. And when you split that atom, a certain amount of energy is created, even though the atom itself uh, is destroyed. The science of splitting atoms is called fission. Uh, and when you do fission, when you split just one atom, of course, very little energy is released. But when you, uh, when you do fission, when you split this atom, uh, what happens is something akin to uh, bowling pins or dominoes. Uh, when that atom breaks apart, it crashes into other atoms, and those atoms split apart. And so a chain reaction is caused, uh, whereby uh, we have this uh, giant amount of, of uh, atoms being split. And that's where uh, this energy is uh, released from, from this chain reaction. But it's really dangerous, of course, if the energy is not properly harnessed. Uh, when we uh, sent bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that's what we were doing. We were sending off this, this atomic explosion. It, it was energy and not controlled, just doing a, a great amount of damage. Uh, so when uh, scientists do this, it's obviously something that's very, very dangerous. The natural state of an atom is to remain together, protons, neutrons, and electrons all together in one uh, state, uh, the way God created it. And you can split the atom, but when you do it, you better be very, very careful. And marriage is really quite similar. When God takes a man and a woman and he joins them together, he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They're not to be torn apart. They're not to be split. And that's God's intention for marriage. This is what he said in Genesis 2, 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the general rule is, is that we keep couples together. We, we, we let no man separate. Now, there, there is an exception in our passage today, but we need to understand that Jesus' focus was on the rule, not on the exception. Uh, so like the Adam should remain together, couples should remain together as well as husband and wife. The exception should be used with great caution and only as a last resort. So I want us to look at the passage again today, and then we'll take it under four headings. Uh, we'll look at it as uh, under divorce in first century culture, and then we'll look at what the Pharisees taught about divorce, then we'll talk about what Jesus taught about divorce, and then finally uh, we will finish with a look at God's heart. So Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32, it was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, let's talk for a minute about divorce uh, in the first century. Uh, many of you know that divorce, of course, is quite common in our day today. Uh, it's actually uh, really runs rampant. Uh, if you look at statistics, uh, 40 to 50 percent of all marriages end in divorce. And as hard as it is to believe, the rate for second marriages is even higher. So divorce is quite prevalent uh, today. 
in our culture. And in Texas, there are seven legal valid reasons that you can get divorced, and, and this is what they are. Uh, they are abandonment, when one spouse leaves uh, for at least a year without intending to return. Uh, living apart from each other without any cohabitation for three years. Cruelty, when one spouse treats another uh, cruelly to the extent that uh, living together is no longer feasible. Uh, confinement to a mental hospital. If one is confined to a mental hospital, that's grounds for divorce. If one commits or is convicted of a felony, that's grounds for divorce. Adultery, of course. And then insupportability, discord of personalities, so that there is no reasonable prospect of reconciliation. So obviously, it's not hard to get a, a divorce these days. Uh, when you look at these reasons, almost anything will qualify. This last one in particular, a discord of personality so that there's no reasonable prospect of reconciliation. Uh, to me, uh, that means you woke up in the morning and you didn't like uh, what your wife said to you last night and you're like, I'm out of here, that's it. There's no reasonable prospect of reconciliation. And so uh, when, we, when we look at our divorce laws, they're really so broad and so general that make it quite easy uh, to get a divorce. And when we think about that, we think, boy, uh, could it be any easier uh, to get a divorce? And shockingly, in the first century, it was actually easier to get a divorce uh, than it is to get a divorce even now uh, in our day. Uh, women were treated as property. They had virtually no rights whatsoever, and they were uh, subject to the whims of a man oftentimes. Uh, and they, if they were divorced by their husband, they had virtually no means of support uh, as a single woman. So uh, only men also in, in Jewish culture had the right to divorce. So women had no right to divorce. So a man could set aside his wife, but a woman could not do that uh, to her husband. And so we see that uh, the, the, the scales were not tilted at all in favor of women. Uh, so as we study our passage today, uh, we need to understand that Jesus was correcting the attitudes that had developed in the first century uh, that the Pharisees had uh, and the teaching that they taught uh, other people. And so Jesus was saying that divorce is not God's will or God's plan, and he was correcting the Pharisees' teaching on divorce and about women because the Pharisees held such a low view of women and such a low view of marriage that divorce really was like drive-through. You could get one so easily. So we have to understand that Jesus taught this about women because Jesus loves women, and he was encouraging that people don't get divorced. Jesus taught in a world that was not phased at all by divorce. It was rather quite common, and it happened all the time. So I want us to understand uh, this culture that Jesus was teaching, and just to understand how revolutionary and how countercultural Jesus' teaching was uh, as he taught what he taught here in our passage for today. So we'll do that briefly by just looking at marriage in Greek culture, marriage in Roman culture, and then finally a marriage in Jewish culture. Uh, first century Greeks had a very low view of marriage. Women were expected never to leave the home, certainly not without the presence of their husband with them. Uh, they were not encouraged to have friends. Uh, on the other hand, uh, men were expected to be outside the home. They were expected to have extramarital relationships. That was part of what it was to be a man in Greek society. Uh, Demosthenes, a Greek uh, statesman, said this. He said, we have courtesans, that's an escort, a mistress, or a prostitute, for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, and we have wives for the purpose of having legitimate children and a faithful guardian over our household affairs. 
Nice, right? I mean, that's a pretty low view of women and a pretty low view of marriage. Uh, The wealthy could afford to go to temple prostitutes, and that was actually encouraged. That was part of the pagan ritual uh, of uh, religion, that they would go and be with temple prostitutes. That was supposed to be a religious experience and part of their nightly pagan festivals. Uh, Mistresses had higher status than wives in Greek culture. Uh, One mistress uh, of a man named Pericles, who was a famous orator, she was very well educated and she's credited with teaching him the skills of oration and and in fact actually writing his speeches for him. So mistresses could have a high status, but wives, meanwhile, were virtually disregarded as you see by this quote. Uh, Greek law required no legal process to get rid of your wife other than to dismiss her uh, in front of two other witnesses. That's it marriage over, just like that. Well, how about marriage in Roman culture? You know, the Romans had a a fairly high view of marriage uh, in the centuries leading up to the first century. Uh, The the father was the head of the family. Uh, Marriage was highly regarded. The family was well esteemed. Uh, And in fact, there is no record even of any divorce in Rome before 234 B.C., But what happened was when Rome conquered Greece militarily, uh, they became the ruling power in that land. But what happened was that Greece actually conquered Rome culturally. And so the things that the Greeks believed and practiced tended to infiltrate uh, and be adopted by Roman practice. And so uh, the Romans, uh, by the time of the first century, when when Jesus came on the scene, divorce really had become just as rampant in, in Roman culture as it did, as it was in Greek culture. And one Roman quip uh, went like this, marriage brings only two happy days, the day when the man first clasps to his wife's breast and the day when he lays her in the tomb. So again, not a high view of marriage, not a high view of women, uh, obviously. Uh, so that's Greek culture, that's, that's Roman culture. Well, how about Jewish culture? The Jews should have had the very highest view of marriage, right? Because God highly values marriage and God highly values women. Uh, we've already mentioned Genesis 2.24, But the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, written over a thousand years after the book of Genesis, uh, we see there is no change in God's character or his commands. God says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. So nothing has changed. Moses wrote the most definitive passage in all the Old Testament law about divorce. And so we'll look at it. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I want to read this slowly and carefully, and I want us to notice what it does say and what it doesn't say uh, about marriage. So let's look at it. When a man takes his wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife... And if the latter husband, that's the second husband now, uh, turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband, that's the second husband, dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, that's the first husband, who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." So I want us to think about what this passage says and what it doesn't says, uh, say. 
Deuteronomy 24 is really not about uh, when divorce is permitted. What we see here is that the only command in the whole passage comes in the very last verse. Uh, the woman is, uh, the husband may not remarry the woman after he divorced her if she had remarried someone else, and then that marriage had ended either by death or divorce. So the whole passage is really a hypothetical uh, statement about when remarriage is not allowed. But nevertheless, there is a condition in there where Moses talks about when mar or when divorce is allowed, and he talks about indecency. And indecency means when a woman uh, is married and is found not to be a virgin at the time of her marriage, or if she commits adultery. In that situation, in that circumstance, uh, the husband had the right to divorce his wife. Not the obligation, but he had the right. And so if he t did choose divorce then he had to give her a certificate of divorce and a letter of dismissal. And it would say something like this, uh, let this be from me thy writ of divorce and letter of dismissal and deed of liberation that they, thou may marry whatsoever a man that will. And so if he decided to divorce her and he was then never allowed to remarry her uh, if she married someone else. And so this was intended to limit divorce so that you couldn't just uh, divorce somebody uh, and then uh, hopefully maybe someday you could marry them again for whatever reason. You couldn't do that because once they had been remarried, then it becomes an abomination to the Lord because that woman had already committed adultery and so to remarry her uh, would be to affirm the adultery. So Deuteronomy teaches, if we were just to look at it in summary form, here's what Deuteronomy says. There's only one reason for divorce. That's unchastity or adultery. Divorce was allowed in that situation, but it wasn't required. If divorce was chosen, then a certificate of divorce was required. And once that divorce happened, remarriage to each other was not allowed if the wife had married someone else after the first marriage. That's all the passage says. So that's not a whole lot to build an entire theology of marriage, divorce, and remarriage on. Uh, but that's what happened by Jesus' day. By Jesus' day, there were conservatives on the one hand and liberals on the other hand, just like there are in our day. And some followed the conservative teaching of a man named Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai taught that you could get divorced, but only for reason of unchastity or adultery. That's who conservatives followed, but the liberals followed the teaching of a man named Rabbi Hillel, and he taught that you could get divorced for just about any other reason that you want. He focused on this part of the passage where uh, it says, she finds no favor in his eyes. Rabbi Hillel focused on that rather than because he has found some indecency in her. So over the centuries, uh, she finds no favor in his eyes could be for just about any reason at all. Quite literally, if she burned his meal that would be finding no favor in his eyes. And he could divorce her simply for that. That's how liberal the teaching had become. And, of course, human nature being what it is, uh, most followed the school of Hillel, right? The less restrictions, the better. Nobody wants to be told that they can't do something. They want to be told that they can do something if they want. And so Hillel prevailed. And so by Jesus' time, divorce was rampant. A certificate of divorce given in the presence of two witnesses ended the marriage. And so men would abuse women because of the power that they had over them. And they would do it sometimes with pleasure and, and most times without shame. And that is the state of marriage. Where Jesus came in the first century, he was confronting uh, Greek culture, Roman culture, Jewish culture. Uh, and marriage was in a shambles at that time. And so Jesus 
came and he taught to correct what had been taught, the teaching of the Pharisees, and to reinstate God's very high view of women and of marriage. So uh, with that backdrop, we can think now about what the scribes and the Pharisees taught about marriage. Uh, And to do that, we need to look at the parallel passage. There's a passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, uh, where Jesus talks in greater detail uh, than what we have here in Matthew chapter 5. And what we see is uh, we're able to get a better idea of the full uh, scope of what the Pharisees taught about divorce. So we'll read verses 3 through 9 and then talk about that. Some Pharisees came to Jesus and they were testing him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So I want us to see verse 3. Uh, first, the Pharisees came to test Jesus. So don't miss that. Uh, they really weren't interested in, in uh, what Jesus thought about whether he was following God's view of marriage or divorce. He wanted to know, they wanted to know, does Jesus agree with our teaching on marriage and divorce? And so I want us to see a couple of flaws uh, in the Pharisees' teaching and a couple of things in the Pharisees' thinking. Uh, And it shows that they were following uh, the school of Hillel, relaxing uh, these rules about marriage and divorce as much as they could. And so the first thing is that the Pharisees taught that a wife could divorce, uh, or a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. Uh, And we see that in the Matthew 19 passage. So somehow the Pharisees took this very rare and specific instance where a man could divorce his wife, this reason of unchastity, and they had expanded it into any reason at all. Uh, And then the second thing the Pharisees did was they turned a concession into a commandment. Uh, Moses said that a man could divorce his wife if he found unchastity, but he never commanded her, him to divorce his wife if, he had un- if there was unchastity. Uh, rather, he would prefer that they stay together. Uh, but this was the teaching. So what is the thinking that gets them there? What are the flaws in their thinking that reveals why the teaching was incorrect? Well, the first thing is this. The Pharisees focused on the exception rather than focusing on the rule. Uh, They were trying to figure out how much can I get away with and still be deemed to be in compliance with the law. Uh, They were asking how much they could get away with rather than asking what do I have to do to, to follow God's heart for marriage, not to mention treating women like possessions, uh, even though they too are image bearers of God. So they focused on the exception rather than the rule. And the second flaw in their teaching was that they focused on procedural formalities rather than focusing on the heart of God. So they did this by divorcing a woman for any reason at all. Whatever you decided, she no longer finds favor in my eyes. uh, That's it, marriage over. But 
they made very, very sure to hand her a certificate of divorce following the strict letter of the law so that the law would not be violated. Here is your certificate of divorce. They did that every single time. And so what we see is that they're, again, they're, their thinking is skewed. Their thinking is off, just like we saw when we looked at murder and adultery. Jesus cares a whole lot less about uh, following the strict letter of the law and being sure that she's got a certificate of divorce. He cares more about their hearts and do they want to stay together? Do they want to follow after God's pattern for marriage? So God cared about the certificate of divorce because that certificate of divorce protected women. But God cared a lot more that they actually stay married. Now, I want us to remember at this point that we have to look at this teaching in, on divorce in the entire context of the Sermon on the Mount, right? This, these two verses don't stand here in isolation. He was preaching them as part of this long Sermon on the Mount that he gave. And Jesus taught, we are to be meek. We are to be merciful. We are to be peacemakers. We are to be agents of reconciliation. We're to reconcile with each other. We're to be salt and light uh, in the world. And so we have to see these verses in that context. Uh, so along that line, uh, there was a fourth century commentator uh, called Chrysostom. And this is what he said. For he that is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife? He that is used to reconciling with, his other, with others, how shall he be at variance with her that is his own? And so we see uh, in this comment uh, the heart that God is after. So brothers and sisters, the question is not how much can I get away with and still be in compliance with the law? That's the, the head condition that Jesus came to fix and, and to emphasize the heart condition that's required to be a true disciple of Christ. The right question is, what is the nature and character of God, and how do I follow after that? Well, the nature and character of God is the Trinity, right? God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, living forever in perfect unity, perfect harmony, uh, never in conflict with each other. That's the goal. So along those lines, then, with that in mind, we can think about what Jesus taught and we'll look at it in our passage and in Jesus' response to the Pharisees in uh, Matthew chapter 19 uh, to see. So our verse again. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So verse 31 here is just a summary statement of what the Pharisees taught. Let him give her a certificate of divorce. So they were focused on the part of Deuteronomy that they cared about, giving her a certificate of divorce. But in verse 32, Jesus talks about the things that God cares about, uh, that, that they stay together as much as possible. And the heart of God is that people not get divorced because two people then become one flesh and what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus protected women from divorce and from men who would uh, just uh, very uh, casually cast them out because God is a God of relationship and love and unity and sacrifice, and that's what he wants from two people in marriage. And where the Pharisees were focused on the procedural requirements to make a divorce valid, Jesus says, no, it's the heart of marriage that I want from you to be my follower. Uh, your heart should be one that stays focused 
on marriage. And where the, uh, where the Pharisees taught from Deuteronomy and, and made great use of this exception, Jesus took them all the way back to Genesis in the beginning, the Genesis chapter 2 verse, and taught what God has joined together, let no man separate. So the rule is we stay together. The principle is that we stay together. But Jesus did make an exception, as we see in these verses. And it's except for the reason of unchastity. Now, this is a very, very hard word to define. Uh, the Greek word is the Greek word porneia. And if you pick up various translations of the Bible, you'll see it translated various ways. Uh, it's translated as unchastity, immorality, sexual immorality, terrible sexual sin, fornication in various different versions of the Bible. So it's a hard word to define, and it's really hard to know exactly what counts and what doesn't as a valid reason for divorce. And I would say that this is made even more difficult because in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, it's translated there, this word porneia, it's translated as immorality there, whereas here it's translated as unchastity. And so we see that this word has a wide range of meaning. It's a really elastic word. Uh, and so uh, it, it certainly is broader in meaning than adultery. Adultery means uh, two married people and there's, uh, there's a sexual immorality or somebody else has been allowed into the marriage. Uh, we know what adultery is, but porneia uh, is, is more broad. It's much more general. It's, it's sexual sin uh, of some kind uh, between two people, uh, but it's really hard to define. Uh, and when it happens, the marriage has already been broken. The marriage covenant has been broken because that sexual immorality has occurred. And divorce is only the civil uh, ending of a marriage that has already been broken uh, by this violation of the, of the marriage uh, contract and covenant. So I'd like to stand up here and tell you that I can say exactly what qualifies and exactly what doesn't qualify every single time but it's impossible to do because this word uh, has various meanings. Uh, there's only so much that Jesus said, and the rest of it Jesus left unsaid, which leaves us in an uncomfortable position sometimes as we try to think about, uh, is this a valid reason for divorce? Is that a valid reason for divorce? Uh, and the truth is, it, it's hard to say because Jesus doesn't go into every conceivable hypothetical and say, you can do it here, you can't do it there, these are the rules. Uh, we're left to follow the heart of God. And we want to, as Christians, as disciples, we want to follow the heart of God and follow God's model for marriage and reconcile whenever possible. That's always the goal. But we see because Jesus doesn't talk so much about the exception or lay out what it is uh, in great detail, we understand that Jesus was focused here more on the marriage than the exception. Uh, he wanted people to stay together. I wish Jesus had said a lot more. Uh, as a pastor, as somebody who could uh, counsel married couples, I sure would like to have a manual of what Jesus says in every given situation, here's what you do. Uh, but Jesus didn't talk about all of that. Uh, one thing in particular that I wish Jesus talked about a whole lot more was this idea of abuse. What, is, what do we do with, with physical or emotional abuse? What do we do when uh, a woman comes to us, or for in my situation, if I were a pastor and counseling a woman who came to me and said that she has been battered and she's been abused physically by her husband, uh, how do I handle that? The, the, the Bible doesn't specifically say that you can get divorced for reason of being a battered woman. Well, 
I wish Jesus said more. I can tell you what I wouldn't do. I would not say, well, Jesus never said anything about that, so you have to go back into that house and you have to try to reconcile even if it means that you're going to continue to be beaten. I would do everything I could to get that woman help and, and to get that man help. And if it turned out that it was just not possible, I wouldn't tell this woman, you can't get divorced. I would pray that Jesus' heart is that uh, a woman can't or is not obligated to stay in that situation. Now, some of you may disagree with that, and, and that may be the most liberal thing that I ever say from this pulpit, but it doesn't specifically say you can get divorced for reason of abuse, but I think Jesus' heart would be to allow such a thing. But again, the reason he doesn't talk about it is because he's focused on marriage rather than the exception that allows divorce. But when I say that about abuse, then the question becomes, well, is it one time physical abuse? Is it 10 times? Is it 100 times? How much physical abuse is necessary? Or what about emotional abuse? What if he just yells at me and screams at me day and night? Am I allowed to get divorced then? And you know, the truth is, I don't know. Jesus didn't say I'd have to hear it on a case-by-case basis. And I think uh, that is to be our attitude. Uh, Jesus always focusing on the marriage rather than trying to figure a way out of the marriage because that's the heart of God. And our relationship with God and our relationship with others, the goal is always reconciliation. Uh, I wish that Jesus would have said more, but he only said what he said and we're left with what he said. Uh, His focus was on marriage, but in very limited situations, he allows a concession uh, against the general rule. Well, as we look at Matthew chapter 19, I look at that particular section, verses 7 and 8. Uh, This is what uh, he said to the Pharisees. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? But he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been that way. And so Moses allowed divorce as a concession in certain circumstances because of the sinfulness of man and and to protect women from the whims of her husband, uh, knowing that man is sinful and man will send a woman out of her house, uh, out of his house. But we have to understand that that was never God's design, uh, this concession. God's design is Genesis 2.24. What God has joined together, let no man separate. They are one flesh. So God didn't endorse divorce, but knowing that men are sinful, he allowed a concession for the weak and the helpless. Now, I want us to think about, you may have heard in your your journey that, uh, you know, Jesus, maybe he didn't do a whole lot for women, right? Have you ever heard that said before? Uh, Jesus came into a world, a male-dominated society, and he chose 12 disciples, all of whom were male. So where's the equality? Where's the justice? Where are the rights uh, for women? Well, I hope that having talked about marriage as much as we have this morning already and and about how it it was in first century uh, Israel, in Greek culture, in Roman culture, in Jewish culture, I hope you see how countercultural Jesus' teaching was. And I hope you see that Jesus did a whole lot for women by this teaching. He protected women, and he reminded men of God's original plan for what marriage is supposed to look like. And God attached consequences when they were wrongfully divorced. A divorce stigmatized a man who wrongfully divorced his wife, as we see in Matthew 19.9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So we see there that the man is an adulterer if he divorces his wife and marries another woman. 
And then if we look back at our passage, 532, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman, he commits adultery. And so we see that there is tons of collateral damage when there is improper divorce. Uh, Everybody becomes an adulterer. Everyone gets hurt. So why does God have such a heart for marriage? Why is it that God upholds this institution of marriage so strongly? I want us to talk about the gift of marriage, and I want us to see that there are many benefits that God intended for marriage. Uh, There are these personal benefits, right? Uh, God said in Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. So we see that God had in mind companionship for man. Uh, He wanted a man to be with a a woman so that they could share life's experiences together, to to go through life together, to experience uh, the pain of life together and help each other through it, and to experience God's blessings together. It's a blessing to have a companion uh, to do that with. And Included here, of course, is the gift of sex, uh, which is a gift that God gave to married couples. Uh, And it's a beautiful and a wonderful and amazing thing uh, between married couples. It's an amazing physical gift, but it's also an incredible intimate gift as God uh, shows how two people actually become one flesh, sharing this intimacy that God had in mind when he said, the two shall become one flesh. So there are personal benefits to a marriage. There are also social benefits to a marriage. The family is produced through marriage, and family is the backbone of any thriving society. And one of the problems that we are seeing in our country today is the disintegration, the destruction of the family and family values nowhere near what they were a generation or two ago. And when the family disintegrates, society disintegrates around it because society or marriage and the family has always been the backbone of society. And so society was always to be organized around the family unit. So those are the social benefits of marriage. But there's also this idea that um, marriage represents the relationship between Jesus and us, his church. And so The only ones who ever enjoyed unbroken fellowship with God were Adam and Eve, right, in the Garden of Eden. But when they sinned, that fellowship was broken and sin entered into the world. And so they were cast out of the garden and we have been uh, living in sin ever since. And, And Jesus came and thank God that he did because he offered us grace. And now because of his grace and because he died on the cross for our sins so that we might live Uh, We can have fellowship with him again. It's not perfect fellowship like Adam and Eve had because our lives and our hearts are tainted by sin, but it's still a glorious relationship. And the sacrifice that Jesus made to allow us to have this relationship with him uh, is an example of the sacrificial love that we are supposed to show each other in our marital relationships. So we ask ourselves, how does our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in marriage? Let's be honest. Marriage is not always easy, right? You put two sinful people, two selfish people, and you put them together, and it's not always going to be peaches and cream, right? Sometimes you're going to have conflict. But 
people who are trying to have their righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in marriage don't look for a way out. They don't run for the escape hatch. They try to stay together. They try to reconcile as best as they can. They sacrifice everything they can to stay in the marriage. Young people, uh, God's plan for your marriage is that you get married and that you stay married. So when you are looking for a spouse, you don't go into that marriage thinking, well, if this doesn't work out, I'm just going to bail because, look, it's so easy. We just saw the seven reasons why in Texas you can get divorced. Pretty simple. You have to go into marriage without the thought that there is an escape hatch. You have to figure out how to work through your problems. And so the best way to do that is to marry a Christian because you're going to share a biblical worldview and hopefully you can work through biblical reconciliation uh, when you have disagreements. If you marry a non-Christian with a different worldview than you have, it's very difficult to work through these problems. So marry a Christian, listen to your parents' advice. Sometimes they know better, as hard as that may be to believe, young people. Uh, We've been there before. Uh, and always be sure you have the same worldview. And if you do, uh, and, and you marry a person like that, well, marriage is an incredible gift. But the other gift that I wanted to talk about is the gift of grace. I know that some of you here have experienced divorce, and I know that many of you here didn't want that divorce, but unfortunately in our society, as we've seen by looking at those seven reasons, if somebody in the marriage wants a divorce, that divorce is going to happen, and there's nothing we can do uh, as the injured spouse, the, the unwanting spouse, to stop that divorce. When divorce happens, uh, it creates a whole lot of turmoil. And you may not have wanted that divorce, and even if you did, uh, I'm not judging you. God knows my sins are many, and if I were to stand in here in judgment over anybody here who's been divorced, I'd be the biggest hypocrite on earth because my sins are as many as anyone's. And so uh, I hope you know that I have no joy in preaching this message about divorce. I wanted not to preach this message on divorce, but it's the full counsel of God. And so here we are preaching what God teaches about marriage. And so my only joy in preaching this message is to say what I'm going to say right now. And that is that there is always, always, there is always grace whether you are a victim of divorce, whether you got divorced but you didn't know about Jesus' teaching before you got divorced, whether you knew about Jesus' teaching about divorce and you went ahead and got divorced anyway, even if any of those circumstances is true, there is always grace. Jesus Christ died on the cross for that sin and any other sin that you've committed and any other sin that I've committed, he died for all of those sins. And so there's always grace. As I thought about where we've been so far in the Sermon on the Mount and then peeked ahead to where we're going in the Sermon on the Mount, man, it is so convicting. Every single week we are confronted with Jesus' standard of righteousness and holiness, and we understand that even though we have the Holy Spirit, we can't reach that standard of holiness and righteousness uh, that Jesus has. Every verse in the Sermon on the Mount shows us our need for Jesus. We are sinners, but because of our faith in Jesus, we will not bear the punishment for our guilt. And that's why I'm so grateful for grace. None of us can keep God's commands. Even with the Holy Spirit, we will fall short of his holiness and his righteousness. But because we have the Holy Spirit, we know that we belong to Jesus. And because we belong to Jesus, 
we can claim Romans 8.1 for ourselves. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the only answer, the only hope we have for our sin is in Christ Jesus, and I praise him today. Amen. Lord God, that's a difficult message to teach on divorce. And Lord, there is so much collateral damage because of divorce in our society. And Lord, uh, I pray for everyone in this room that we would uh, just recognize our own sinfulness, Lord, and that we would recognize that uh, even if we have not been divorced, we are every bit as in need of your grace as anyone else. And Lord, we are so thankful for the cross because by it, our sins are washed white. And Lord, we know that we will spend eternity with you because your son died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. We thank you for these things, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.